Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And once again, um, we are here with Emily Jashinsky. Emily is a fellow with us over at the Independent Women's Forum. She is also the culture editor at The Federalist, and she um, is in charge of young journalists at Young America's Foundation, as well as one of the hosts of the wildly popular independent media show, Counterpoints, a subset of Breaking Points, which I always reverse going backwards, uh, but she, she wears many hats. And, and one of those hats we were fortunate enough to have uh, have her with us every uh, every month for one of these episodes where we go over some of the things that we thought were maybe undercovered or not fully fleshed out uh, in, in the news cycle, in the wild uh, 24-hour news cycle that is our political lives. Um, and on that note, we are not going to talk about the 2024 race. We are not going to talk about Donald Trump's indictments and the fact that we now live in a banana republic uh, where both contenders may possibly be either the president or in jail. Uh, we're going to be talking about some some other uh, topics that I think are in some ways more interesting and more uh, important. And I'm going to start it off with this is, I guess, tangentially related to 2024, but uh, that's not where I'm going to go with it. So we had this big forum with all of the presidential candidates other than Trump um, hosted by Blaze Media. And. To my mind, this is the first time in my political lifetime um, that Republican candidates for president were actually asked questions that distinguish between them on the issues that Republican base voters care about. So this is, you know, a huge shakeup. You get huge presidential, got huge ratings. Right. Um, So what what do you think about this entrant of new media, Blaze TV? Right. This is not cable. This is sort of independent. Do you think that this is going to be a blip or do you think that we've turned a corner in terms of really getting serious interviews on things that Republicans actually care about when voting for Republicans? Because, I mean, that sounds super basic, but at least in my political lifetime, like I said, I've never I've never experienced that. You're right. That's the biggest difference between what happened in Iowa and uh, what happens at typical debates. And, you know, the first debate is a month away. The first formal debate is a month away. Donald Trump uh, has has said he probably won't go. Ronna McDaniel recently, just this week, actually said she thinks he'll keep us guessing. It's set to be hosted uh, by Fox News. So I would imagine that Brett Baer, Shannon Brame are on the slate there. Um, but it, it is a, a stark contrast. The Blaze event was a stark contrast with what we've seen. Um, For example, I think the Chris Wallace debate was a really good uh, case study. Um, Any CNN debates have been good case studies. Basically, most of these legacy media debates are, a lot of people probably remember the Candy Crowley moment where she like live fact checked Mitt Romney incorrectly in 2012. Yeah, she was wrong. wrong. Foreshadowing the entire fact checking industry. Yes, exactly. Which was just a remarkable moment. But the blaze stepping in and broadcasting the summit, which was going to happen either way, the point of the summit, they've done it in years past, the point of the summit isn't, you know, the broadcast in the same way that a debate isn't just for, you know, 200 people that they can squeeze into the auditorium, it's for the broadcast. Um, But I think what the blaze showed is that you can take new media and have a perfectly acceptable production quality. Um, And you can get that packaged in a way where consumers are now being taught to seek out 
alternative media. So they kind of have the muscle memory to get on streaming. Um, they figured that out. They know where to find things like the Blaze, like Blaze Media, and they're going to get a product that uh, A, is better in some substance, and B, is packaged um, in a way that is perfectly acceptable to sort of our uh, standards. You know, we, we have such high production value where, you know, CNN basically broadcasts from a space shuttle now. Um, but even if you're, you're not meeting space shuttle level production, um, it, it looks good. You don't have glitches. Sound is fine. Video is fine. Everything is in working order. Uh, and I think that's a really, really big deal for new media because I, I, not long after, actually, here's a quick illustration of the point the rnc announced that the ruthless guys would be doing i think like a pre-debate either a pre or post debate show in milwaukee at that first debate this was right after the blaze summit was successful or the the faith and family summit broadcasted by the blaze was uh, successful the rnc announced a partnership with ruthless now do i think ruthless is really has their their finger on the pulse of the average republican voter no but I think that's probably why the RNC chose them, because the RNC wants to sort of have that happy medium between new media um, and populism. And that's where they, they landed on the ruthless guys. But I, I really think the Blaze's success is it showed people in Washington uh, and in the sort of political establishment that other people are going to step in and do this stuff. And they're going to do it competitively because the substance will be better and the packaging will be just fine. Um, and that was, that's going to work better for consumers as long as they're able to, you know, log on to whatever streaming platform they need to in order to watch it. If you can do that, then you're in business. So even, even aside from the actual questions that were being asked, and some of those questions were really good and questions from Tucker that I don't think any other mainstream media figure would be asking Republican candidates, um, but also just the analysis around it, you know, the game time analysis, the very traditional cable newsy sort of thing, right? You have the analysts sitting around talking about, you know, how this candidate did on that answer or this question. Like they were dividing the candidates out by whether or not they really were giving an answer to the the, the fact that um, corporate America has swung pretty hard uh, into the, the left's camp on cultural issues, right? They were critiquing answers uh, that were given on foreign policy, on the on Ukraine war, all of these things um, that just, I don't imagine, it just, it, it just reminded me of all those years that we've seen even Republican debates. Like the best we can do usually is maybe we get one guy like, Hugh Hewitt, right, or uh, Mary Catherine Ham, like one reasonable person who's, I mean, Mary Catherine Ham's in the center, Hugh Hewitt is sort of on the center, right? Like you get one person in and then you have a panel of left-wing legacy media types, right? Um, and the, the Candy Crowley incident that you you referenced uh, is sort of peak of that era where you actively have the, the media and the moderator interfering um, on behalf of one candidate versus another, it and it turns out in an incorrect way, right? I just it it feels important to me the fact that this this happened because I just I, I can't remember it ever happening on this big a stage with presidential candidates. Well, that's another really good point, and I had been thinking about the Mary Catherine example too because I I remember part of the she she did a fantastic job. I believe it was a CNN debate. And I remember the uh, sort of Republican commentariat being like, 
wow, very grateful to Mary Catherine. And part of the reason for that, if I'm remembering correctly, is that she asked questions that Republican voters care about in a way that it was framed um, as Republican voters would have framed it themselves. You know, it wasn't the sort of Manhattan framing on a policy suggestion or, or a policy topic. Uh, it was actually like the framing that people would want to see posed to candidates. And to your point, the way, you know, I don't think Tucker Carlson is perfectly representative of the average voter, the average Republican primary voter on Ukraine. I think polling bears that out, although I do think there's a lot of skepticism among Republican voters. Um, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that he's, uh, and he would probably admit this, he, he's probably a little further on that issue than your average Republican primary voter, but he was asking questions that actually exposed the daylight between different candidates, uh, really pushed them. And those are questions you would absolutely never hear in a traditional media debate period. The format was great where it was one-on-one -on -one with him. And then you could just sort of see, you could compare the, the videos to that. Um, but I think your point, and as your central point, is that these are topics, like just in the sheer topic selection. Um, and then, of course, with the platform, that's something that creates competition for traditional media. If all of a sudden Blaze is going to step in, or all of a sudden, you know, hypothetically, like breaking points hosted. Um, I've gotten some presidential candidates recently. Uh, Marion Williamson and RFK Jr. have both been on breaking points. I'm sure there's other podcasts that they've both done as well. But that's, you know, if you have serious competition from people who are able to do the substance better and make the product look fine, you know, at least as good, um, then you're just, you're really facing competition like you have never faced in decades. Like what competition other than ABC, CBS, NBC have they faced um, amongst each other? Like Fox, when Fox came along, um, that's, that's pretty much it. And those are all networks that come through antennas that have been competing with each other. Um, and then you have the cable guys and they're sometimes competing amongst each other, but nothing dramatically new ideologically and that's the fox has pretty much been the only ideological competition to any of these folks yeah and fox needs competition of themselves right no matter which of, of sort of side of, of these various debates within the right one is on and and fox appears to be um you know there was the big flat they fired tucker carlson right um and it's it's not even that I think Fox is like you, there are obviously lots of people who go on Fox and and share a perspective that was probably pretty similar to what we heard on the Blaze. But it's individual people, right? It's not that the network anchors are not going to be asking questions like that in Fox. They're not going to be asking the the framing of questions the way that was asked by Blaze Media. Um, you know, you're not going to have a bunch of people sitting at their decision desk who are going to be thinking about the issues that way. Is it a decision desk at Fox or did I just reveal my ignorance of what they call the, I don't know. the election coverage desk? Um, you know, it, it just it is it does seem to me to be like a moment, just like the Super Bowl was kind of a moment a couple years ago, a handoff between boomers to millennials, <laughs> all of those like acts, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre or whatever. Um, it was all like nostalgia for the 90s instead of nostalgia for the 70s mm -hmm. uh, or 60s. And I feel like that that moment kind of happened in media a little bit, right, with this. There was sort of a handoff to, no, you know, independent media, um, streaming media, this is a real thing um, it, that is going to be competing, you know, sooner rather than later is going to be competing with legacy media outlets, with cable 
And I mean, I think that's all, all to the good. I mean, I remember an article you wrote with Ben Dominich like years ago calling it, what is it, the new Contras you call the them? The new Contras, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is only to the good um, because there really has been, that's the problem with having, it's not that Fox sucks, it's that like, if Fox is the only voice on the right and they decide that they want to go this way or that way on a particular issue, it's it's like a blackout, right? Um, for, for, for legacy mainstream media, it's a blackout on a particular topic. That's, that's a problem. Um, and until now, the whole independent media world has been, yeah, like creeping larger and larger and larger. And, and there was a big break with Tucker, but I don't know. This actually feels, I was a little disappointed with how little Tucker um, moving out. Now, maybe he's still going to do something uh, wilder, but like this Twitter show that he does does not seem to me to have the same mainstream purchase as his show on Fox. And it was kind of a, um, a lot. I think I'm going to lose a bet I made with a friend, by the way, yeah. about whether, whether Tucker's mainstream influence will be uh, up or down in a year after having to leave Fox. So I far, the- I have to say, down right so but this is encouraging this is another like little blip of hey like this this media scene really could go mainstream yeah i think the problem is that twitter is not mainstream um it's it's really only used by a very small slice of the population like i've run the numbers before it's it's so tiny what percentage of the population is a daily twitter user um you know people who have twitter accounts that's still a small figure but people who are using twitter on a daily basis it is so it is such a small percentage of the population and what i think tucker is trying to do there's also a wall street journal story that he is uh courting donors for a big media venture trying to start something again on his own as he did with the daily caller um but you know in for this new era post fox um you know daily daily caller and fox weren't you know competing in in any way um but he's looking for that right now i guess maybe they're competing in news gathering but i I mean on the broadcast side and so he's he's raising money for a new media venture so we'll see but i think both he and elon musk know and this happened this week just with elon rebranding twitter to x uh it's apparently according to walter isaacson and some people who've studied musk closely since the late 90s x has always been his sort of that is his fantasy is if he can create this company x that involves everything finances social media news gathering you can create a hyper mainstream platform basically a one-stop shop and musk himself came out and said this week that twitter it was important for him to buy twitter for free speech reasons but also and and maybe he actually even had the order reversed basically he uh, exposed that his real priority was in, in buying Twitter was not just free speech. It was really about creating this one-stop shop platform. And so I think, you know, that is a huge boon to independent media. If it takes off, that's a huge if, of course, who knows whether uh, he's able to turn X into something that's uh, more mainstream than Twitter. If he does, and you have people like Tucker sort of camped out on the platform that people are using for this variety of purposes, it's great. And it's another sort of big chip in the, uh, it makes a big chip in the power of the gatekeepers. Um, so that's a, is still, that's a still big, like TBD hanging over everything. But, um, 
it is true that the gatekeepers are still very powerful to the point where, um, you know, you can't just put something on Twitter and have the exact same cash and the exact same sort of cultural penetration. Yeah. Um, it feels like this tipping point has got to be inevitable, right? The, the independent media sphere is just building and building and building. And I wonder if it'll be obvious in the moment, like I thought that Tucker leaving <laughs> that tipping point, I don't know that it was. Um, I mean, I, I suppose the jury is still out on that one. This also felt to me like, you know, this is a, this is, this is, this is a big spotlight. This is, these are all the, the presidential candidates. I wish Trump had participated um, forgetting for a moment about, you know, whether he wins or loses the nomination, but it would have added to the um, sort of seriousness of, of the, the fact that of, of this showcase and made it more like impossible not to cover. Right. But even, even without Trump, um, the legacy media outlets had to cover this, right? All the president, Republican presidential candidates answering questions. That's a must cover, um, you know, must cover event. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know when the tipping point is going to be, but I just, it feels well, like there has to be one and it has to be pretty soon. I, yeah, I had the same reaction. I thought the Blaze Summit really was, it felt like critical mass with independent media for me, not just because of the broadcast, but also this is another interesting layer. Every single one of the candidates, save for Trump, felt like they had to sit down with Tucker. The family summit tapped Tucker for it and every candidate went and sat down with Tucker knowing um, in the case, um, I mean, maybe Chris Christie didn't, but the like serious candidates um, to the extent that they are serious based on polling all sat down with Tucker Carlson, even knowing like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence did that they were going to get absolutely grilled. They sat down for this good faith exchange. And that in and of itself is absolutely huge. It speaks to the power of new media that somebody like Tucker Carlson can get pushed out of Fox news and still demand that level of respect from these candidates who know they're going to get pushed very hard uh, by somebody who is, uh, t- you know, just taking them on night after night after night. Um, that I think really speaks to to the power, because if if he had just gotten booted off Fox a while ago, that summit doesn't keep him on board. Uh, maybe he wouldn't have even been chosen in the first place. And the candidates probably skip it unless they're one of the candidates like DeSantis uh, for whom it will probably be good. So that in and of itself, um, I, I think that I, you're right. That sense of critical mass to me, I had the same thing that this is finally, you have to take new media seriously because the blaze pulled it off. And then when the RNC tapped the ruthless guys, I think they had the same reaction. I think a, a sort of shiver went down the spine of people in the political establishment in media and actually, Actually in politics itself, because now they know that they really have to do business with the competitors, with the upstarts. Um, otherwise, they're going to be uh, missing big audiences and not delivering the same quality of a product. And hopefully this means that because, you know, Fox feels pressure or um, the RNC feels pressure, they play ball um, on some things that they wouldn't have in the past, not just with different creators, but actually just with different topics, taking different ideas on. Yeah, that's, I mean, I just think that would be a massive improvement over what we've got. Um, some other, I, I actually have a, a fairly optimistic docket today. So this is this is good. We, we did a real like deep dive depressing one last time. So, <laughs> um, so some other good news uh, we have after this a big affirmative action case, the so Supreme Court strikes down students for fair admissions, right? Strikes down racial preferences in admissions that has all kinds of implications for uh, for other government programs, but it also has implications uh, for 
for private companies potentially. And I, I mm. think with you elsewhere and NatCon and stuff, I, I said that my uh, biggest hope for this case is not actually a direct, like it's going to, it's going to be hard to universities to, to enforce this with the universities. They are going to try every trick in the book to continue applying racial preferences to come out with the racial balance of, of students that they want. Um, it's going to be an uphill battle. I think there are some, some levers to push uh, administratively as well as continuing the lawfare in the courts. Uh, but it is the beginning of a fight very much with universities. On the other hand, with corporations, it's all about CYA and scaring them. Um, and there is some good evidence, uh, or at least some positive potential signs that we are scaring them. Because even though this case doesn't have direct implications for them, uh, the fact that affirmative action is no longer going to be an exception to the colorblind constitution uh, has massive implications beyond universities. And there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, there's actually two articles um, correspondingly, one from like about a week ago showing um, the number of DEI consultant and like uh, HR consultant jobs just skyrocketing with the Biden election, like from obviously from a very low point during the, the dark days of the pandemic and the shutdowns, um, but but skyrocketing well above its previous trajectory in 2019 and early 2020. So like a serious flip over on the one hand for the last several years. And then this article saying, well, but hold up, um, there's been a more immediate in the last several months, there has been uh, a halt to um, potentially to a lot of these uh, diversity programs, hiring people in DEI positions. And then Aaron Sibarium, who does some great reporting on this, um, his sources, he announced on Twitter, he hasn't put out the full report, I think, yet, but um, his sources are telling him that all the corporate clients of major law firms are calling the, the major law firms. They're asking about the legality, the potential uh, legality of their diversity programs, diversity hiring programs, and that that most law firms, even liberal law firms, are telling them, yeah, you might have to watch out. Like, you might have to restructure these programs. You might have to get rid of them. There is potential legal liability there uh, going forward. So I don't know, like, just threw a bunch of stuff at you, but... Um, you know, what's the potential for this? I mean, to me, this would be huge because every corporation in America right now, like major corporation, is discriminating on the basis of race. They're discriminating against white male applicants and to some extent um, white or, or sorry, male Asian applicants and in favor of uh, black and Hispanic female, et cetera, applicants because they want that glossy photo. And <laughs> they had a previous incentive from the Civil Rights Act and the EEOC um, to to try to uh, hire as much diversity as they could possibly swing. Uh, well, now there's legal incentive in the other direction. Well, yeah, certainly good news for Christopher Caldwell um, and, and the people who uh, follow the sort of Caldwell approach to all this, which I find very persuasive. Uh, basically, that the civil rights bureaucracy instituted around the mid '60s fundamentally changed the country. Was a new constitution, and actually, this is the dissent, or this is the um, this is the opinion in which uh, Clarence Thomas referred to new, a new constitution, right? Like a, it, it, I, th I think it was in the the affirmative action opinion. Um, oh, I, I can. This look is that where up. there's that back and forth between him and uh, uh, and Justice Jackson, right? On on this question, not lost on anyone. They're the two black members of the court. Um, it's a great opinion uh, for its own sake, but but yes, um, 
I mean, this is what I hoped for. I'm just so excited. I you want, seem like I it. Want, yeah, you seem I want, so excited. I want corporate cover your ass to go our direction. Well, That's such a powerful force in the universe is corporate CYA. I mean, this like this has been outright racism. Um, whether or not the you think the ends are good or evil, it's racial discrimination, uh, plain and simple. And I think what Caldwell persuasively argues is that when you do have, and it felt to me when I was reading the Clarence Thomas opinion, like he had read Christopher Caldwell, uh, but the, the Caldwell uh, sort of argument is that that builds uh, something completely, it reads entirely new things into the constitution that fundamentally changed the constitution. And I completely agree with that. And actually this is a question I wanted to turn around to you, Inez, is if you are not you personally, but the hypothetical you are sitting in a corporate boardroom looking over your diversity policies, what is it in the affirmative action decision that starts to feel like a legal liability for you? Is it that it opens the gate to um, potential lawsuits? Is it that because the Supreme Court has um, come to a consensus on this this definition meeting uh, racism or racial discrimination, uh, the, the definition of racial prem- uh, racial preferences, finally uh, meeting the definition of racial discrimination as the court found it did, um, is is that what would get someone nervous in the sort of sweet C-suite as they're looking at potential challenges? Um, among other things, right? Uh, so the 14th Amendment applies to state action, Um so it applies to everything the government does or everything the government funds, which, of course, as you know, the, the lines between public and private are excessively blurred, let's say. <laughs> um, and, and there's a huge amount of like money changing hands and um, a, a huge number of projects that are publicly funded but privately executed. Right. So uh, that itself is a pretty big sphere of things. Um, and there's also that it forbids the government to like. Uh, forbids the government from contracting with anyone who, you know, violates, you know, uh, anti-discrimination procedures, uh, provisions. But then there's also a lot of uh, cross-pollination in terms of, yeah, theoretically under the Civil Rights Act, right, the similar language about discrimination um, as the 14th Amendment and like, theoretically, and and sometimes indeed there are two different interpretations, right? There's no necessity uh, that those two become an identity, right? In other words, that the 14th Amendment means the Civil Rights Act and vice versa. The Civil Rights Act goes further in some cases. But there is a lot of cross-pollination of the legal concepts involved, right? So like a lot of the same legal terms, buzzwords go back and forth. Um, you know, some apply in one and not the other, but, but there is a lot of cross-pollination and a lot of the reasoning tends to flip over. And so, and of course, a statute can't violate the Constitution, right? So, um, if, for example, the justices found that some provisions from the 1990s of the Civil Rights Act uh, read in the way we have been reading them since the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, violate this interpretation of the 14th Amendment, well, then those provisions will have to be narrowed in terms of their interpretation. I doubt they'll be struck down, but they won't be able to be used in the same way. Um, so, yeah, like there's a lot of different ways in which you can kind of follow the legal rabbit trail and through a series of hypothetical cases and end up with, yeah, this, this corporate um, program that very explicitly grants benefits to one race as opposed to another um, in terms of, of applicants, right? Uh, you could easily see 
that legal reasoning ending up. And apparently that's what major law firms are, are telling their clients, at least uh, a large number of them are telling their corporate clients, look, you know, this is not something that's happening tomorrow, but that, you know, if you want to avoid any possibility of being sued over this, then you should start to wind down these programs. And so we'll see if that's what they do. We'll see who wins out to the, um, stuff we're always talking about, about the, the college grad culture revolutionaries, the, the sort of professional class that makes up a lot of the workforce of these corporations, they're going to have very strong things to say about this, one imagines. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if the general counsel or the, the law firm on hire is saying you can't do this without major risk of lawsuit, you know, there are going to be a lot of corporations that go the other way. At least I, that's what I hope. I think that's my worry ahead. Um, there was a, a journal story. It may have actually even been one of the ones that you were talking about um, where they said DEI, and we've seen this reported elsewhere, DEI positions exploded in 2020. Uh, I think they increased, like DEI listings increased it by increased by 55%, something like that in 2020. And uh, they have been hit particularly hard in layoffs during this Biden economy or this moment in the Biden economy. And I saw a lot of people cheering that. I, I get that. I mean, I, I think it's possible that certain corporations um, that realize the sort of DEI agenda is a, a consumer vulnerability to them, B, a legal vu- vulnerability to them, and C, financially excessive. I get that. I think there are probably some smart people who have come around to that and ha- who have sort of seen the excesses of the DEI agenda and recognized that it is problematic. On the other hand, um, the point you always make is constantly like ringing in my head about how we have educated a generation of people, some of whom are not yet in the workforce, other of whom are whom are way down on the totem pole or not yet in positions of power, who likely will not be moved on these issues because it is so it is the roots of their worldview um they they don't they've been taught that truth is relative america is bad gender is fluid etc etc and that's uh those are very 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 difficult opinions to fundamentally change um and so when you have that sort of waiting in the the warming up in the bullpen um you know i also suspect that what they're doing is really rebranding some of this stuff like larry fink no longer saying esg yeah right he's not just going to stop um you know doing what he's doing via blackrock um because he stops using the phrase esg he's publicly saying he's going to stop referring to esg and then doing esg uh, by another name so uh, to the extent, it also reminded me of when you were talking, Inez, about the big debate over Stop Woke, the Florida le- the Florida legislation, because um, a lot of stuff that, that Stop Woke sort of proactively targeted, and I think rightfully so, but a lot of that is actually already unconstitutional. Um, and, and I think there's a really good argument to be made after this opinion that... Uh, some of these questions of like what constitutes actual racial discrimination, um, I think it really adds fodder to the the right side of that argument. That is, racial discrimination constitutes racial discrimination. It doesn't matter if it's racial discrimination for uh, a good end. Um, if it's discriminating against people based on immutable characteristics, uh, then it's discrimination. And so, again, our legal routes, the, the conservative movement sort of landed on this, you know, we need legislation and we need good judges. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, but it's sort of interesting to see what will maybe the judges actually will win out uh, faster than people anticipated because the conservative movement was installing judges at such a rapid clip for generations. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I hope so. And of course, there's the question of what the left does in terms of the institutional power of the court. Uh, I, I don't think the people who fought mm. the elected president for four years in a bunch of illegal ways are going to just you know sort of say, oh, well, I guess we lost the court. Mm. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But I want to return to the, the question of generations that you brought up about. So let's, let's talk about the, the the Gen Z folks who are graduating into these institutions. There's, um, there's these corporate uh, these like corporate jobs. There's this great uh, sort of, I guess, meme or, or phrase now. The new the new trending phrase is lazy girl jobs. Uh, <laughs> and so that there's a Vogue piece about this. There's a Wall Street Journal piece, you know, condemning it. Um, it, it apparently went viral on TikTok with all these girls saying that they had these great jobs, these what we would call email jobs, where they do very, very little work. Um, they do a few meetings a day. They send some emails um, and they have a really great work life balance. So they make something like sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year um, and they're bragging about it. And they're calling it lazy girl jobs. Um, so I'm curious, like what what do you think about this phenomenon Um you know, where do you come down on these lazy girl jobs? Like, I honestly could, I could see this being a positive or a negative, depending on how it's phrased or how, how it shakes out. You're totally right. I'm with you on that completely. I think the American work ethic is, uh, has created like untold prosperity. There's, there's no question about it. But uh, I also think, especially the way that uh, it's been pushed onto women is not, I'm choosing my words carefully as a woman with three jobs. Um, as a uh, eighteen jobs, honestly. No, I mean, I think I, so. Personally, I've always seen myself as like a fundamentally lazy person. Like, I, I don't believe that you should be like destroying yourself uh working yourself to the bones like I've, i always like it took you know shortcuts on my homework oh you know wh- whatever i can do like if i were in school with chat gpt uh lord only knows what i would have actually learned um but on the other hand um you know obviously there's a lot of you know dignity and hard work and it, to your point um Obviously, hard. I agree that hard work is important, but this it, this is, I think, a rejection of the millennial girl boss lifestyle, um, which was, you know, when we were, you know, in in our, you know, high school, college years, I early you were years. Say our youth. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Um, when we were, yeah, like in those years, it was Sheryl Sandberg. Like that was the peak of this. And the hashtag girl boss was not ironic. And then Gen Z took it and made it completely ironic, which they, they should have. Uh, because, you know, that's the, what women would probably rather be doing than email jobs. Um, you know, in, in many cases, in the average case, when you ask women if they would rather be working full time, working part time or staying at home with kids, um, you, you get the bulk of people saying they'd rather stay home with kids full time or part time. Uh, and so it makes sense to me that young women are rejecting the hashtag girl boss lifestyle because I don't think it's fully in line with like our natural preferences on average. Again, I'm saying that as somebody who is, you know, 
30 and working a, a few different jobs, like I get it. I, there are people that really do like this kind of work. Like Inez, both of you, both you and I are in that boat. Um, I, it's, it's, you know, it's not for everyone, but there are some of us that are very grateful to have opportunities that have been given to us. Um, and that w- women fought for women who I wouldn't have agreed with probably on everything in the sixties the and seventies and eighties, but they did, you know, I can have a credit card and I think that's a good thing. Although I might change my mind on that. It's, <laughs> yeah, wait till you wait till you, you run up your credit card. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but it, in <laughs> it also, here, folks, we're, we're against women having credit cards. Women be shopping. We're start. Yeah, we're starting to sound like <laughs> Pearl. Uh, we shouldn't have credit cards, and we sure as heck shouldn't be voting. Um, we could keep going with this. It's it's fun, uh, but that is to say, on the other hand. There is, I think, also a problem um, if you are rejecting work and uh, for what, right? Like if they are getting the like the sixty thousand dollar a year girl job, like a laptop job, and just chilling. Which, by the way, I've gone up on my roof times at times in DC, like in the middle of the day. And there are young professionals that are in there like swimming and drinking. And I think to myself, like, if I had one of their jobs, I would probably be doing the same thing. And then they go up to the the pool chair and like move the cursor. Like I I watched that happen, (laughs) move the cursor every once in a while. So it looks like they're on their computer for whatever AI is monitoring their activity. Um, And that's here in D.C. So uh, I it's like for what what are you doing um with the rest of your time uh like you know is it anything meaningful is it anything that's giving you a sense of purpose or dignity uh probably probably not like are you just doing it to sit on the couch and watch netflix during the day and moving your cursor every 15 minutes um halfway through an episode of the office or whatever um I don't know. And that would be my real worry is that you just in the absence of meaningful work and in the absence of uh, meaningful lives, you know, whether for women, it is meaningful work or meaningful work in the home. um, People are just at risk of drifting um, off into their own little silos um, without any tether to uh, community purpose, et cetera, et cetera. They're just sort of in dark apartments like that New Yorker cover in the middle of the pandemic um, of the girl who was dressed nicely from the top up. Her apartment was a mess, takeout containers everywhere, drinking a martini, uh, had pill bottles all over her desk and was uh, talking to somebody over Zoom. Uh, If that's the, the the girl work, then it's bad. Uh, but if people are doing it for more like reasonable flexibility, then I guess fine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have a few questions like one, how much of our our GDP is fake? Right. Right. That's a huge Uh, question. Two, two, who's paying for all this email job fakery. Right. Um, And do they know that they're paying for it? Yeah. Right. So it's built in, there is a cost here of paying these, you know, you have sixty or eighty thousand dollars in salary. That means a hundred to one hundred twenty, and when you include full time benefits, right? That's a lot of money. Uh, and and this is kind of what I was pointing to with that piece I wrote back in January about Twitter and how Twitter could fire seventy percent of their people and still function. That points to a lot of BS jobs and a lot of fake value being created, right? Um, and, and there's a question there of who's paying for this. You know, um, where is this? sort of totally unnecessary 
um, you know, money coming from to pay for these totally unnecessary jobs, right? Uh, that consist of moving the cursor a couple times. Um, so this is part of the writer's strike, by the way. Andrew Schultz made this point this week, uh, comedian Andrew Schultz, that the, what the writers might be doing is putting themselves out of business uh, because they want to know what views some of these shows are getting in the golden age of TV, whereas this, there's this explosion um, of sort of gig-style writing and producing jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not production, but whatever. Those types of jobs that have exploded in the golden age of TV with all of these different streaming channels that are inflated by a lot of investments. Even some of them are carrying a lot of debt. But as soon as we find out that nobody is watching some of these very expensive prestige shows that uh, get good reviews on the in the sort of glossy mags but don't actually get viewership among the public because they don't appeal to a wide swath of the public then uh, we could see a huge crash and so sorry like sorry to interrupt but i, I was no. thinking about that today i think it's a good i am point. really wondering how much of our lives are fake like how much of american prosperity is fake how much of, of what we produce is like like what you're saying, that there are these shows getting great reviews and um, everybody maybe have heard the name of the show, but then like nobody's actually seen it. I mean, how much of this is all fake? So that's one question, but like, let's bracket that because that that is, I mean, to think about in a serious way, what percentage of what we're producing, quote unquote, just doesn't exist is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The, the, the second thing, if we just bracket that for a second and talk about like sort of the cultural consequences, this is lazy girl jobs, right? Not like lazy person jobs. <laughs> um, presumably there've always been some people who are harder working than others, et cetera. Um, yes, they're called men. <laughs> uh, it, it really makes me wonder though, uh, is this is another ill response the way that me too was like to a real problem where I keep wondering if instead of these hard truths breaking through. So I think it's a really positive thing. If we're talking about the fact that, you know, women maybe have a very different um, life trajectory, career balance, all of those things than men for all of these biological reasons, both in terms of, of, um, you know, finding a husband and starting a family, they have different, uh, different time scale than men do for that. Um, but also just in terms of, of, you know, psychological traits and, and what makes people happy or feel fulfilled, you know, men get a lot of meaning and fulfillment out of providing for their families. Um, women seem on average to, to have less of that. And in fact, they get fulfillment from relationships. And if you don't have time to invest in your relationships, whether that's within the family and home or outside of it with friends or whatever, that, you know, this is a much more lonely and, and difficult life for women than it is for men. Um, so all that you could say, well, that's all to the good. Like maybe it is a really good idea to get a lazy girl job um, <laughs> from 22 to 30, uh, spend a lot of time dating, trying to find somebody in a serious way, um, you know, and then, you know, get married younger than the millennial generation did, have kids younger than the millennial generation did. Um, that decision is going to be easier if you your, your couple is not dependent on uh, the woman's uh, income, even as a professional, like for a lot of professional couples, dual income, you know, you, your, your spending catches up with what you're making. And then it's really, really hard for the woman to quit. Um, if she has kids, they need that income stream coming in. Um, you know, if, if, if having a lazy girl job for the 10 years after college, um, 
I, I think that could be an enormous improvement in terms of the life script that is now put in front of like ambitious, smart, professional uh, women, right? I actually think that could be a huge benefit. But then on the flip side, your question, I think, got right to the point, which is, you know, to do what? <laughs> so if they're doing that, that's great. And I think that that's would be a, a very welcome cultural development. Um, the question is whether this housewife, like essentially what this is, is the housewife lifestyle with no kids and no husband. Yes, that's well said. And and so if if it's just to like, you know, and very little work on the rooftop, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Then then I think that that will just it'll be just one less peg in in terms of uh, schedule meaning. Um, attachment to community that'll just come out, right? Whereas work is not the best thing for, for especially for women to derive meaning in community, but it may be the only thing for a lot of, of women at this point. And it reminds me of two things. One, so like when Me Too first came up, right? In a, as a, in a big way in like 2017, 2018, right? You could see how it was a response, a feminine response to a very... Um, liberal sexual culture and right to, and to, to natural women's experiences within that sexual culture. Um, they start, but the only way that our society could deal with it was to put it in this, to stretch the concept of consent, right. To, to stretch the concept of harassment, to expand it way beyond what everyone sort of agrees is should be illegal and bad into, well, I didn't feel good about the sex that I had last night. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I didn't feel good about how the guy behaved to me during or after. Um, and it was an expression of very real sort of feelings um, that I, I think were were valid and, and had good reason. Uh, but then just like projected into this legalistic system uh, that became a total like tyrannical minefield. Right. For men. And I wonder if in the same way, these impulses like that girl bossing is not, you know, is not as uh, satisfying uh, a life as it was presented to millennials as mm -hmm. that's very real, but then it could pop up over here and okay, well then if, if the new solution is, well, you're not going to work 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week, you're going to work 10 hours a week and spend the rest of the time by the pool. Um, <laughs> then that's not going to solve the fundamental meaning problem. Um, even though it's a response to something real. So that's kind of what I would worry about this. If, if, especially with, with friendship in decline, with, you know, the dating and sexual market being so much of a mess, uh, the apps and everything else and, and everybody's li lives going digital. I mean, does this not just make us more pod people, just pod people with pools? Yeah. <laughs> well, and most people aren't pod people with pools. Um, you know, there are a lot of them uh, out there. But, you know, I think back to being young and hearing uh, ad nauseum, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, um, which seemed like an old adage at that point to me because it was being transmitted from wiser people. But uh, except for the very upper echelons of Western society, that has basically never been an option. Um, that has not been a truism because you would have to love like subsistence living which i'm sure many people did love or in the industrial period you would have to love like 
bottling things or working on an assembly line. And again, like I'm sure some people loved that. And I imagine people definitely found meaning in that because they had great relationships at work um, and it helped them provide for their families. And uh, in Marco Rubio's book, he writes about uh, how his mom worked in a factory and loved it because it was stamped with the brand of the company that she worked for. And was she was so proud of it every time. I think it was furniture. Uh, you know, you, you saw that furniture at someone's house. You knew that that went through your factory. That came from your company. Uh, so again, like it, it's just, that's not what's happening now. People are stamping like random, I don't know, like what PowerPoints. <laughs> <laughs> and it, for this for their it's mine there are many like it but this for, one is mine <laughs> yeah again like listen i think there's meaning in some of the job like we're, we're not talking about everything but there is something very very different about an economy that is is uh, you're contributing less and less to the physical manufacturing of things in your community or in your country so yeah like that's different uh in and of itself and i also think uh the the original girl boss uh, hashtag uh, the Sheryl Sandberg era was very much fixated on you on, on women finding purpose and meaning in work outside the home. That this is uh, not just an acceptable fear, sphere in which women should find meaning, but it is an important one. Um, and that I think is what's being rejected. And it gets to this weird, uh, like. I don't know how to, what to say, but it reminds me of Marx. It reminds of like reading poetry in the, the fishing in the morning and reading poetry in the afternoon, whatever the order is of those things. Like it's this weird thing where you're, you're, uh, you know, fleecing a multi-million dollar corporation or you're contributing to their bottom line, just very, you know, and, and very small in a very, very small way that you're overcompensated for and getting to do whatever the heck you want. And what are you choosing to do with your time? I mean, human, without that structure um what are we going to choose to do with our time we'll probably get a slow buzz on at a like a, a pool and then what sleep for the afternoon and send a couple emails in between um i don't know i mean i feel like we could talk about this for a whole episode and it's just hard because it's not the it's it's obviously not everyone um, but there is like the laptop class is going in a, in a direction that I think it makes sense. Women are rejecting and rejecting in unhealthy ways. Yeah, I just I guess just something to keep an eye on and, and see how it gets, goes forward. Because I could see it just like, you know, this feels to me like a moment where to, to make another comparison, you know, there were certain quarters of, of the right, I think, in a dumb way, cheering the decline of teenage pregnancy right out of wedlock and yeah that's a good Mm -hmm. thing it's a good thing that there are fewer teens getting knocked up before they get married absolutely a good thing why is that happening well is it because people are making more virtuous choices they're making more responsible choices no it's because teens are retreating into a digital world nobody's having sex and no one's like going to parties the same thing with the steep decline in in drinking and partying among high schoolers is it a good thing that high schoolers were you know crushing beers at somebody's house when their parents were away not necessarily yes but if the alternative is they don't have any friends and they never leave the basement and they live entirely online like that's actually that decline is not indic- indicative of something that's good and i wonder the same thing about this right that in terms of of the cultural trajectory and the the life cycle of, of the girl boss i feel like this is a a big positive but it may just be an indication that one more 
uh, sort of one more institutional pillar, communal, communal pillar is just being knocked out from people and they're finding it harder and harder to feel that themselves a part of anything. Uh, they already don't feel a part of their country. They already don't have a national identity. They don't have a religious identity, right? Um, all they have are these sort of intersectional and half of them made up identities. Uh, and and um, now they won't even have work, even though work was taking on this very unhealthy place and replacement for all those other important things that bring people meaning. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess I'm just wondering, I keep an eye on it and see where it goes. Um, the other thing is it just might just be, it might just be a generational uh, difference. One thing I, I always felt was very unfair some of the critiques that boomers made of millennials of, of our generation, I thought were very fair. Um, there is a certain entitlement mentality, like millennials did not want to start at the bottom, right? They wanted to do something that, that had meaning that gave them meaning, right? There was the, the, the cliche that you were pointing to about do what you love. Right. Um, and millennials felt very entitled to do that. Uh, but one thing I always thought was unfair was lazy. I don't mm. think our generation was lazy. In fact, no. I, I think it was just connected to, before, like in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, before everybody had a laptop or a phone, I feel like it was just boomers looking at what people were doing on a computer and saying, that's not real work, <laughs> you know, um, which I think I haven't thought about that passing away uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, even even 80 year olds understand now that uh, even if they don't spend a lot of time with the computer, that computer you know, sitting at a computer is quote unquote real work. Right. Um depending on, I guess, whether you're sometimes, (laughs) uh, but you can do real work on a computer, but I really didn't, I didn't feel like that stereotype was actually true of our generation. I feel like we actually, we worked long hours. We didn't have a lot of separation the way that the boomer generation did where they step away from their desk and they actually disconnect. Like, you know, millennials are tied to their, their phones, answering emails on the weekends and so on. Um, So I actually just never felt that that was accurate from what my friends tell me who are managing Gen Z though, that, they feel that it is accurate that Gen Z is lazy or, or that they are mentally incapable of handling basic instructions and work. Uh, obviously this is big generalities. Uh, there are plenty of hardworking Gen Z kids, I'm sure, and plenty that, that um, can handle the sort of work environment. But I have heard complaints from my friends who manage Gen Z about like getting emails, you know, when a project is late or whatever saying, I'm going to take a mental health day. Yeah. Like, I can't handle work today. Sorry. And like, even though you're a critical part of a project and something is due and it's not like there's something actually like you, you know, you're not actually physically ill or, and, and not even in crisis, but you're just, you know, they're very open about just emailing it. Be like, no, I can't, I can't do my job today. And I, I think in some ways I actually hadn't thought about those stereotypes of millennials in a really long time because now everybody is contrasting millennials with Gen Z. And uh, it's interesting to look back on that because it was the, uh, the, the era of these absurd office spaces, Facebook, Google, um, they made that movie, the internship, which sort of blended a uh, really, really hard work with uh, a whole lot of man. fun. Yeah. Ping pong, whatever. Um, and yeah, the computer stuff, all of that like gave this. And I do think some millennials really did check out of the economy in 2008 and um, maybe haven't quite checked all the way back in. So I think all of that's like sort of, and there was Occupy Wall Street, um, contributed to this idea of, of millennials that it was in some ways 
only representative of a small slice of millennials, very loud and politically active slice of millennials, but a small slice nonetheless. And it's another reason I think I'm tempted to see the uh, girl, what is it, girl job as a, a good Lazy thing. Lazy girl job. Lazy girl job as a good thing. I like how I just uh, acted as though it was redundant and just shortened it unintentionally to girl job. Uh, but it, I, that's why I'm tempted to see it as a good thing because the time theft that companies have inadvertently robbed people of, and I'm talking about executives themselves, um, the psychological harm that they've done to themselves and families and communities um, over email and text messages when you really cannot check out of work at any hour of the day um, in a lot of jobs. Uh, you know, even if you're, let's say you work uh, at a Starbucks, like you probably are going to keep checking your phone if uh, you're worried that someone needs you to pick up a shift. Um, it, it, these things just happen. Like there are reasons for us to constantly be tethered to our phones, no matter what kind of work we do for professional purposes, not just, that's not even going to talk about the personal reasons, but just for professional reasons. Uh, and so I understand it. And I think Gen Z being, uh, perhaps a bit lazier, uh, and a word that I would use is maybe entitled, um, comes from partially the, the psychological lack of distance between personal and professional, where if you're always, if you're growing up and your schoolwork looks like emails, um, and then your real work looks like emails and your personal life looks like emails or your personal life looks like text messages, um, and then your work life looks like text, text messages, which a lot of workplaces conduct business over text message now because it's easy. Um, channel or whatever. Right. And then it's just like, oh, okay, you know, I, <laughs> like you don't know what to do. Uh, you don't know what you're not on. You're not punching a clock um, in so many cases. And it's psychologically not an easy thing to not an easy sort of wall to build. Yeah, I mean, I take your point and it's a good one, which is that like if you're expected to always be on, then, you know, maybe they're just more assertive than millennials about saying, well, like, you know, uh I'm just not available today because I, I've been quote unquote on for, you know, I'm, I'm on 24 seven. So anytime that I like, I need some downtime, I just like email back and say, nope, you know, uh, yeah. I'm having, I'm taking a me day today or whatever. Um, so that's, it's a good point. It's, it's worth considering. Uh, before I let you go, since you are the culture editor, <laughs> so we have Barbenheimer or whatever, uh, this huge box office weekend uh, for these, these two movies, uh, the biggest, I guess, in recent history, um, at least since 2019, this is an industry that was fading and, and people, you know, having difficulty getting people back to the theaters after the pandemic, um, in part, I mean, I would argue in part because the, what's on offer was so appallingly bad. <laughs> um, but this seems to have brought everybody out of the woodwork. Um, have you seen either of these movies, by the way? I haven't seen either of them. Um I saw a movie a couple of weeks before. I, I do go to a lot of movies, but I haven't had a chance to see either of these yet. I'm amazed by the people who did both in one sitting. That is just an incredible psychological feat to go from With one that. movie yeah. to the other and to stay in uh, these theaters and the condition that they're in. David Marcus had a nice Daily Mail uh, piece on the condition that theaters are in now. Um, for that long of a time, like, listen, there's no way that I could do that. So uh, God bless you. But the the monologue that I did on Barbenheimer uh, for counterpoints um, was the sort of joke 
is these things are so completely different. Um, and that's why it's funny. They're playing on the same day. Like one is very masculine and serious. One is very feminine and kind of trivial um, or seen that way, at least, even though like Barbie from all accounts and Greta Gerwig's account, et cetera, um, is not, per- is not trivial. It's, it's supposed to be something uh, deeper. Um, and there's a raging debate in the conservative media right now as to whether it's, it's really deeper or if it's just sort of woke pablum that we, we didn't get into having not seen the movie, but um, I do think it's funny that we think of these things as so different um, because Barbie was part of this like plastic post-World War II plastic revolution actually manufactured. The first Barbie was manufactured in Japan in 1959 as it was sort of clawing out of the hole of the post-World War II hole and uh, without sort of uh, American hegemony um, and American power in the Middle East uh, this, like the plastic revolution, the plastic boom that fundamentally changed human life. Um, if you look around yourself, like there are so many things that are made possible because of plastic and so many things that were just made cheaper because of plastic or whatever it is, it just it completely changed human life. Um, that's because of Oppenheimer. <laughs> like, there's a real argument that uh, Oppenheimer brought us mass plastics. Uh, and, and who knows what would have happened, um, you know, if, if America doesn't, it, it goes beyond saber rattling and, and is not the first country to use the, the nuclear weapon. Um, I don't know what happens, but it's it seems pretty clear that our decision to do that, uh, which then sort of cemented uh, American victory, that it, it ushered in a, a new era, uh, not just of prosperity in the West, but also of plastics. And Barbie is a huge part of it. Just something that uh, it's so silly. People had dolls before. They were mostly wood. Um, but here you have the ability to take oil um, from Saudi Arabia and in Japan, turn it into a doll and then ship it back en masse to the United States and all of these different varieties. Uh, it, it's just, it's very, very new in the scope of human history and it's very much a post Oppenheimer event. I'm also like just glad to see another death rattle of the monoculture. Um, I think, you know, probably once a year in the future, we'll have some type of monocultural experience and we're still getting a few of them every year now. Uh, Super Bowl. Um, so for, for people who haven't heard that term before, like me, I assume you mean a, a cultural moment that has broad and mass appeal where people from very different sort of spheres of life or background and, and um, who would normally not be interacting with the same media are all focused in on because you're right, this is this is maybe the biggest since I don't know Game of Thrones. Maybe was the last thing that like everyone, even if you hadn't watched it, people were talking about it. Everyone knew, everyone sort of knew that it was of the moment, right? Yeah, exactly. It's you know you you get a huge percentage of the country watching the Super Bowl every year. Like a, a, it's a majority of the country watches the Super Bowl every year. Um, but it actually used to, we used to have those on an almost nightly basis. Um, and especially in our communities, uh, you know, so baseball games, football games, whatever. Um, but uh, when there was more choice than just CBS, ABC, NBC, um, we stopped watching, you know, the same shows. And we got really splintered into silos. Um, and then when the internet came along, we weren't all reading the local paper um, we weren't all listening to the local radio station. We weren't all watching nightly news. Nightly news used to be a huge part of monoculture. Walter Cronkite, um, the, the entire concept of a appointment television or water cooler television was this idea that, uh, 
if you didn't watch American Idol the night before, stay away from the water cooler because you're going to find out who got voted off. Everyone's going to be talking about it. Um, or you can go back further to the MASH finale, which I think is uh, the most watched television finale of all time still. Um, everybody in the country was watching that. There was these shared cultural sort of touchstones. Um, you could you know talk about what was in the most recent uh the, the most recent edition of Life magazine with someone and they would know uh, they would be able to engage in conversation. It's, it's most likely that they would. And so these shared experiences, I think, were good things. They're not normal. Uh, you know, it's very much a, something in, that came up of mass media, um, but it did, I think, help unite our country very much. And um, it's, it's sad when we lose those things, especially as we lose our connections, our social connections to each other. Uh, I think those things can play a really important role in uh, patriotism and uh, in community and bring people together and have like certain things that we can talk about. Um, so I like every time I, we experience, you know, a death rattle at the monoculture, I savor it um, because we we will have fewer and fewer in the future, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I guess two good points. One, that this mass production culture, um, both literally with the plastic Barbie and, and with our enormous cultural influence around the world in terms of American television, starting in the golden age of Hollywood, just and after World War II, I mean, American pop culture conquered the world. Um, and I mean, it, people, uh, people laughed about the like, uh, oh, the they hate our freedoms, right? No, in the Middle East, they hate our freedoms. I think it was something quite concrete. It was that American culture became unavoidable mm. uh, every corner of the world, right? To the point where, you know, the guys in the Taliban are worried about their daughters listening to American music and watching American TV shows, right? It became so ubiquitous in the world. So it's been a huge part of our, um, huge part of our, our, our cultural success, I think. Uh, also potentially a huge negative if, if, uh, if America goes, goes bad. Um, but <laughs> leaving that aside uh, for a moment, the possibility, the depressing possibility of becoming an evil empire, uh, <laughs> Also, just you're right. I mean, about this, this mono, I've never heard this word before monoculture, but it, it really is true. I mean, uh, think about like the Ali fights, right? Muhammad Ali fights. These, these like yes. these pop culture moments um, were, were common in a particular sort of period of time, really starting in the 40s and 50s in America, um, that the sort of uh, peak pop and mass culture um, probably in you know, ends in the, the peak of it ends in like the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands. And after that, with the internet, you really do get on the one hand, you get people being able to connect with each other over minute um, sub interests of theirs. You get the explosion of countercultures, right? Um, but on the other hand, there's not really so much of any mainstream pop culture anymore to, uh, to be a countercultural force too, right? We, we have lost, any of those common cultural reference points where like, I don't know, friends or so, or even, yeah. even sex in the city became that kind of cultural um, flashpoint in, in, in the nineties, late nineties, right? Like the, these shows that people, as you say, would talk about at work. Um, you could, you could, there were holdouts, but you could assume that everyone had either seen it or um, they were going to see it or, uh, you know, they had some particular reason for not wanting to, or not being interested in it and wanting to see it, but they would be very aware of what it was. Um, and they would know what you were talking about when you talked about the show. We don't have a fewer and fewer of those things. And yeah, this is, this does feel like that. It feels yeah, like, like Top Gun too. 
yeah, everyone is talking about these two movies. They're making jokes about it. You know, even people who haven't seen them yet, they're either planning to, which one are they going to see? They're going to go both people dressing up on Instagram <laughs> and everything. Um, so it, it, you're right. Um, let's, let's, I guess, enjoy the, the monoculture moment, uh, even if, if it comes at woke Barbie expense. Um, all right. You're too, you're too optimistic these days. And as it's, you know, what? It has me worried. Up, upbeat, upbeat show. Generally we're, we're going to scare corporations uh, DEI people are being fired. We got uh, <laughs> running away from girl bossism, and uh, we got we got Oppenheimer. I, I did see Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, by the way, it, I thought oh. it was quite good. You did? Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I thought it was good. Um, I, I think it's it's a uh, it was interesting because obviously it's Oppenheimer was very sympathetic to left wing causes and all yeah. kinds of accusations about his communist connections and so forth. Um, and the movie definitely plays into a idea of, of the McCarthy era as the big, bad, evil. Um, but nevertheless, like a really a well-written movie, well-acted movie, uh, great soundtrack. Uh, just And also just, um, this is something my husband, Jarrett Seven, has a, a column out talking about this, but it almost feels pleasant to have somebody in the past sympathetically portrayed, even though Oppenheimer, not my favorite of the, the sort of guys in the past, undeniably a huge part of American history, an important figure in world history, um, to be sympathetically depicted hmm. like, like a human being, like like as though people in the past were actually just like us and, and um, you know, discovering new technologies, weighing moral consequences, you know, just like us, that we are not so, in fact, morally superior to people in the past. Um, I, I thought that it did that really Didn't well. He- didn't he try to murder a girl with an apple when he was a teenager? <laughs> his, uh, they, they depict that actually. I don't think it was a girl. It was oh, they uh, do. His, his like, Oh yeah. It was professor. a guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his professor. Yeah. No, but it, it depicts him. Uh, it depicts him. I think sympathetically, it does show some of his flaws. It has some of the critiques of him as a, as a person. Um, anyway, I, I thought it was, a, it was, it was a good movie. It's, it's a good movie. I, I enjoyed watching it. It's, enjoyed the three hours, you know, was immersed in the subject for three hours, which isn't enough of a, I mean, I feel like so few movies even hurdle that bar for me anymore where I just, I get bored and I, I, I don't even forget. I for, don't forget that I'm in a movie. There's no suspension of disbelief. I just remember that I'm sitting in this theater and I, I want to check my phone, but I don't cause I'm polite. Yeah. You have to drink to forget. <laughs> well, they do have that now. I know that's like the goodness. You can you can buy a you can buy a glass of wine. You can buy buy a beer in, in the movie theater, which I you can buy a bottle of wine. Oh, geez, come on now. Um, you can <laughs> you can. There's there is a uh, there is a movie theater out here where it's almost like it's like a dinner. And yeah, so you sit with like comfy chairs and they serve you dinner. Yeah, and like they bring you a bottle of wine and you like can you have, have like your friends sitting at a table. Like it's like going out to dinner with your friends, but there's a movie playing. I think there's a future of movie theaters. Um, yeah. I, I love that. I think there's a future. Um, I think it's how you get people back to the theater. Yeah. Well, it got me back to the theater. It's much more enjoyable. The seats are comfier, you know, although I, we did pay $9 for a popcorn, a small popcorn, which, Ugh. which felt like a you know small what? popcorn. <laughs> that is almost classic. You know, like getting overcharged for movie theater popcorn is such a nostalgic feeling for me that I'll let it slide. Biden's America. <laughs> All right. With that, uh, Emily Jashinsky, thank you for this episode of High Noon After Dark. Uh, 
we'll, we'll be back with Emily in another month to see what what uh, cultural monocultural moments perhaps have uh, have taken place in in between. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Emily. Thanks, Inez. Um, and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.